You're going to love this. Just love it. Yeah, me too, I hope. Mm-hmm. Sounds what a busy news day. hear the word sounds enough on the radio. Or anywhere for that matter. Yes, I am stuck in the middle with you once again on the broadcast live from Los Angeles. Pacifica Radio's KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake, and now on KYAQ 91.7 FM on the Oregon Central Coast, and of course, coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on the Progressive Voices channel, on Netroots Radio, Liberal Justice Radio, and now on iTunes. You can run, but you can't hide. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly citizen investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. And I'm not kidding. It is a busy, busy news day today. Uh, we are going to uh, try to get through as much of it as we can. And we will be speaking momentarily to Brendan Fisher from the Center for Media and Democracy. But first, just some quick news items today. Federal appeals court upholds the ruling that struck down Utah's marriage equality ban as a violation of the Constitution's Equal Protection Clause, a three-judge panel has deemed the state ban unconstitutional in the first ruling on same-sex marriage at the appellate level since the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act in 2013. We are going to see all of these cases in state after state. We're going to see all of them likely get to the Supreme Court, I would think, by next year. And this thing is going to be settled across the entire nation. That will be nice. Freedom and equality for all, at least in the realm of marriage. Uh, at the same time today, federal judge, a federal judge in Indiana also struck down that state's ban on marriage equality, finding that it violated the U.S. Constitution. The judge, Richard L. Young, chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana, noted the string of federal rulings in issuing his own decision today. He wrote, it's less than a year in less than a year. Every federal district court to consider the issue has reached the same conclusion in thoughtful and thorough opinions Laws prohibiting the celebration and recognition of same-sex marriage are unconstitutional, Judge Young wrote. It is clear that the fundamental right to marry shall not be deprived to some individuals based solely on the person they choose to love. In time, Americans will look at the marriage of couples such as, uh, such as the plaintiffs in the case and refer to it simply as marriage, not a same-sex same -sex marriage. These couples when gender and sexual orientation are taken away, are in all respects like the family down the street. The Constitution demands that we treat them as such. 
more good news. I try always try to start the show with some good. Well, not always. I try to start with the show with uh, the start the show with some good news uh, because uh, things seem to turn so dark thereafter. Uh, the Supreme Court today ruled that police must seek a search warrant in order to search your cell phone. Well, that's good news for a change. Uh, the Supremes also decided today in a victory for the nation's TV networks that Internet startup Aereo could not rebroadcast network television to Internet subscribers, even though those network signals are otherwise available for free over the public airwaves. So uh, maybe not such a good decision there. Anyway, later on in this show, we will have some exclusive reporting on two good news stories in a single day today for California voters. How often does that happen? Uh, As a shadowy photo ID initiative goes down in flames out here in the Golden State and a Republican bill supported by Democrats, oddly enough, Uh, that we reported on exclusively at bradblog.com and here on the Bradcast two weeks ago. Uh, That bill, which would have restricted post-election recounts out here in California to only wealthy individuals, I'm not kidding, that bill has now been gutted following our expose on it. So I'll give you some details about that a little bit later in the show. Also, details on the man Wisconsin investigators are describing as the most prolific multiple voter in memory. And you will never guess what party he's from. Hint, he voted for Scott Walker in the 2012 recount up, uh, recall up in Wisconsin. He voted for him five times in that election, according to prosecutors. Plus, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report will be here a little bit later on the Supreme Court approving EPA emissions regulations yet again on the fact that May 2014, oh, don't tell Fox, May 2014 was the hottest May on record across the globe. And there are titans of Wall Street now warning that climate change is going to be very, very expensive. And if we have time, speaking of Fox News, uh, while the world is warming, Fox News is amazing. Fox News is now telling us that actually it's not warming at all. It's actually cooling I will ask Desi Doyen about that a little bit later, but here is a teaser from yesterday's Fox News. Well, forget global warming. The U.S. has actually been cooling since the 1930s, but she wouldn't have known that because someone faked the numbers. The shocking (laughs) new report ahead. Yes, that shocking new report on the faked numbers about global warming, that it's actually cooling after all. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. And you can tweet me throughout the show at the Brad blog. All right. But first, speaking of Scott Walker, uh, so-called democracy is going wild in Wisconsin as prosecutors are revealed to have been investigating major campaign finance violations by Scott Walker and his uh, and chums, described as a, quote, criminal scheme in court documents that were were revealed last week. Uh, joining me to discuss that and, frankly, more importantly, how how much bigger this case actually is than just Scott Walker, at least as I see it, and how uh, what could be decided here could well undermine the very last of our campaign finance 
laws that are still standing in this country. To, to talk about that, I'm joined by Brendan Fisher, the general counsel at the Center for Media and Democracy, which, by the way, has recently merged with Progressive Magazine. Brendan Fisher, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Really glad to have you here, Brendan. Uh, I thought of you guys when I saw this case, when I th- saw the information uh, in this case last week, uh, be unsealed by the judge. I thought of you guys because I know how closely you have been following not just all of these Scott Walker cases, but all of the campaign finance cases and uh, the way it has been undermined, campaign finance laws, since Citizens United, since the McCutcheon case. So what I first want to do is just very quickly uh, cover where we are in this Scott Walker case, and then I want to look at the bigger picture which I think is actually way more important, and we'll see if you agree. First, uh, Brendan, can you explain what are John Doe cases in the context of Wisconsin, uh, since most states don't have anything like uh, John Doe cases, they have grand juries instead? Sure. Uh, well, so a John Doe investigation is similar to a grand jury investigation. The way it's been described as is, is like a grand jury, but in front of a in front of a judge rather than a jury, and they're investigations conducted in secret in order to gather evidence uh, and determine whether there's there's enough evidence to bring to bring charges uh, prosecutors a bi- and I should note a bipartisan group of prosecutors in Wisconsin both Republican and Democratic prosecutors uh, from counties across the state have been investigating whether Scott Walker his campaign and other possible legislative leaders have been coordinating with dark money groups like Wisconsin Club for Growth during the 2011 and 2012 recall elections. Um, and, and now just to clarify, this new John Doe case, uh, this is separate from an earlier one, a first John Doe case when uh, a couple of years ago now, when I, I think six or so staffers of Scott Walker, his top staffers, uh, when he was, before he became governor, when he was the Milwaukee County executive, they were charged or they pled guilty uh, to campaigning, essentially to campaigning on county time using a secret uh, email network that was built in the actual executive offices just about 20 feet from Scott Walker's office to communicate with each other, to work around uh, open records laws and so forth. Somehow Walker personally escaped those charges uh, while everyone else around him went down. But now we have this new case that you mentioned, Brendan Fisher, uh, in, in which all of these groups, these so-called outside groups, back in 2012, during the uh, infamous recall election of Scott Walker, uh, they were working together. But now we also learned that they were not only coordinating with each other, they were coordinating with Scott Walker himself, with the candidate that uh, used to be illegal, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I I would argue that it is, it is still illegal and it's it's largely uncontested that coordination uh coordination between candidates and politicians is illegal. It's pretty clearly illegal under federal law. You mean candidate uh, you mean between candidates and and outside groups. Yeah, yeah, between candidates and and outside groups. Right. And the the reason for that is that even after Citizens United, even under the, the far-right John Roberts court, um, contribution, contributions to candidates can be limited and contributions uh, can be required to be disclosed. And that's the case under Wisconsin law. You can't give more than $10,000 to a gubernatorial candidate, and if you 
give a contribution, it has to be disclosed. But in the wake of Citizens United, you've got these independent groups like Wisconsin Club for Growth that can accept unlimited donations and, for the most part, don't have to disclose anything. And, and the, you, yeah, go ahead. If the two, if if a candidate can work directly with a group like that, then the candidate contribution limits and the disclosure requirements are are meaningless, uh, because you can ask you can ask a donor for a million dollar contribution, uh, just give it to this group, and I'm going to tell this group how to spend it, and the value to the to the candidate uh, is is the same as if there was a million dollar secret donation directly directly to Scott Walker's campaign, uh, and it's all happening in secret. It's is a huge potential for for corruption, uh, and that's even that's even further than the uh, than the John Roberts court would would like us to be. It's it's much further than anything they've ever endorsed. And what Walker and Wisconsin Club for Growth are arguing is that because because the they only coordinated over issue ads over ads that didn't explicitly <laughs> tell viewers how to vote. Right. Uh, they instead told viewers to call Scott Walker, call Tom Barrett. That therefore. These rules don't apply. Uh, it's, it's entirely absurd, but they did find a far-right federal judge, uh, Judge Rudolph Rando, who's a member of the Federalist Society, regular attendee of these Coke-funded judicial junkets, uh, who sided with their who, who sided with their kind of insane interpretation of the First Amendment and the insane interpretation of Wisconsin law and has halted the John Doe investigation. So, and so let me uh, try to summarize what, what you just said, because I want to make sure that people understand this. What you're saying is that the Supreme Court decided that uh, these millionaires, billionaires can give pretty much as much money as they want to these outside groups who are not supposed to be coordinating their efforts, their ads, etc., uh, with the candidate. In this case, the candidate was Scott Walker uh, and some other candidates who are running in the uh, 2012 recall elections that happened after Republicans up in Wisconsin uh, essentially you know, began taking away union rights up there. And so these groups, they can only give a small amount of money to the candidates, uh, but uh, or these billionaires, these millionaires, these Koch brothers-funded outfits, but they can get as much money as they want to these outside groups, and these outside groups don't reveal who their donors are because they are nonprofits under the 501c4 uh, regulations of the tax code of the IRS. So they're supposed to be social welfare organizations. They're not supposed to be political groups. And yet, they begin doing campaigning. They begin, as we learn in Wisconsin, coordinating with the candidate. But now these groups are saying, Oh, that's okay. We're not violating any campaign laws because the the only commercials that we're running and that we're coordinating with Scott Walker, they're not actually commercials that tell people who to vote for. They're more like uh, commercials that say Scott Walker is uh, the the savior incarnate. Tom Barrett, his opponent, totally sucks. Have a nice day. This commercial is not paid for by Scott Walker. And that's essentially the type of ads because they don't specifically say vote for Scott Walker. They just say Scott Walker is wonderful. They think they can get away with this. They think this is their First Amendment right and that this investigation by prosecutors who charge that this is actually all illegal, that actually the prosecutors are violating their First Amendment rights. Is Do I have that all correct, Brendan? Yeah, that that is that is exactly correct, and and even even in Citizens United, the court uh, the court reasoned that 
we're going to strike down limits on independent groups. We're going to strike down limits on fundraising and spending by independent groups under the theory that the lack of coordination undermines the value uh, of those independent expenditures to the candidate. So the independence was really key. The independence of the group from a candidate was mm-hmm. really key in, in Citizens United. Uh, the other thing I'll, I'll raise here, you know, what Walker and his allies have been have been saying about this investigation is that it's completely groundless, completely baseless, not grounded in any sort of any sort of Wisconsin law, uh, and that's a it's a partisan witch hunt. Um, and they they say that despite the fact that the prosecutor leading the overall investigation is a Republican who was on George W. Bush's short list uh, for a U.S. attorney appointment. <laughs> And he swore under oath in court that he voted for Scott Walker in 2012. So this is a guy that voted for Scott Walker in 2012, looked at the evidence of coordination, and looked at Wisconsin law, and agreed that there were criminal, there, there are possible criminal charges here, and has led this investigation. But that hasn't stopped Walker and his allies uh, and, and friendly media organizations like the Wall Street Journal editorial board from attacking the investigation as as a partisan witch hunt, and and they ha- it hasn't stopped them. Uh, well, at least they haven't gone on record to complain that the judge in the matter, who was uh, newly on this case, that he was partisan, despite the fact that this judge, as you said, Brendan Fisher, was attending these meetings, these super secret summits with the Koch brothers who fund the very uh, outfits that are now being investigated and who are now uh, you know, trying to claim that their First Amendment rights are being violated because, hey, they weren't doing anything other than uh, educating the public on social welfare issues like uh, who is a really great governor and who should never be voted for. Uh, this is amazing to me because this is going to have effects across the entire country if these groups are successful in their pushback against the prosecutor. Now, Brendan, I want you to tell me somewhere here that I have it wrong. We've got in 2010, Citizens United, the Supreme Court rules that corporations can spend as much money as they want, essentially, on elections through these third-party outside groups, through these so-called 501c4 social welfare organizations that don't have to report their donors. That's what people call dark money. Then, earlier this year... The Federal Election Commission, the Republicans on the on the FEC, refused to enforce campaign finance laws against Karl Rove's Crossroads GPS, which we reported here on uh, on the Bradcast in a Brad blog. Very few people covered this, despite the fact that Karl Rove's group spent millions of dollars, uh, this so-called nonprofit social welfare organization. And they refused to file as what they should have done, uh, filed as a political action committee. And the Republicans on the FEC let them off the hook. So no accountability there. Then you get to 2014, the the McCutcheon case, where the Supreme Court decided that limits on how candidates can, uh, on how many candidates one can directly uh, contribute to, they throw out those limits. Then the FCC refused, the FCC, the Federal Communications uh, uh, Commission, refuses to take action on the use by right-wing corporate radio outlets up in Wisconsin who blatantly promoted Scott Walker during that recall and recruited volunteers over the public airwaves. And when his opponent, Tom Barrett, tried to get public, uh, his uh, supporters tried to get equal time, they were told no. A complaint was made to the FCC. The FCC said, oh, sorry, yeah, we don't have that anymore because we threw that out with the Fairness Doctrine. And... 
now you have this court case where they are trying to undermine the idea that uh, they are not supposed to coordinate with Scott Walker, even though you've got email, apparently, from Scott Walker to Karl Rove saying that well, my top guy, R.J. Johnson, is coordinating with these outside groups. So with all of this, if the courts rule in favor of these outside groups, if it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, it seems to me there will be virtually nothing left, Brendan, when it comes to campaign finance regulation in this country. All bets will be off if this Walker case uh, moves forward and and the Supreme Court decides the way they have in the recent past. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It could potentially have huge, huge implications. Um, because like we, like we discussed earlier, if a, if a politician can coordinate with a group that can accept unlimited contributions and have all of those contributions be secret, then it's, it's pretty much a lawless, uh, lawless campaign, campaign finance environment. Uh, and you're going to see a lot more corruption. Um, actually, you're not going to see a lot more corruption. There's going to be a lot, be a lot more corruption uh, in politics. But because all the contributions are going to be secret, we're, we're not going to necessarily see it. Uh, and Judge Randall's decision was pretty off the, uh, pretty off the wall. It was definitely not grounded in existing First Amendment precedent. And the Seventh Circuit, many people expect the, the Seventh Circuit to reverse his, uh, reverse his ruling. But uh, Eric O'Keefe, the, the director of Wisconsin Club for Growth, who brought this lawsuit, who brought this federal lawsuit challenging the John Doe as a First Amendment violation, uh, he's a longtime, longtime associate of the Koch brothers. He was part of the, he was national, national director of the Libertarian Party during, uh, during the 19, 1980 Libertarian campaign, he goes back uh, goes back a long time with the Koch brothers. He's hired David Rivkin uh, out of D.C. as his attorney. David Rivkin is probably best known for uh, working in the George W. Bush administration and defending torture, defending the George W. Bush administration. Of torture course, policy. yes. They're they're gunning they're gunning to bring this up to the Supreme Court. So even if the Seventh Circuit does reverse Randa's ruling, which is expected, uh, it's also expected that they're going to appeal again to the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and present them with another opportunity to strike down even more of what remains of, of campaign finance limits. Yeah, I, I think this is an absolutely huge case. I'm somewhat surprised that it is getting so little attention, because if you pay attention to the trajectory of this thing, this seems like it could be very, very bad news. Brendan, in the last uh, minute or two before we have to go here, uh, what, what are the possibilities? Where do we go from here? Uh, you know, is there a way to, uh, you know, to bend this curve in the other direction from where it seems to be headed? What are the possibilities? What do you see as, as Congress or the states being able to do uh, to reverse this, I would say, pretty horrible trend that seems to be undermining democracy? particularly when you've got a Republican Congress who won't do anything to stop it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is, it is, pretty, uh, it is pretty difficult. It's a pretty difficult set of situations. The Disclose Act has come up again in, in Congress, uh, and, the, and, and Democrats are pushing that pretty hard, and that would at least provide some, uh, some transparency in federal elections, but that may not necessarily have the same impact on, on the state level. Uh, and, of course, I mean, what, what is really needed is a constitutional amendment, unless we have some sort of change in the makeup of the U.S. Supreme Court or we get Kennedy to change his mind, which seems unlikely. Uh, the only real option right now is a constitutional amendment 
to re, uh, reestablish Congress's authority and the authority of the states to regulate regulate money in politics. And there is a lot of there's a lot of momentum around that right now on both, uh, and it, it, it's momentum that's coming from across the political spectrum. Uh, but there is there is still right there there's still a fair amount of latitude within states to create and enforce uh, campaign finance laws. You saw. You, you saw the California mm-hmm. enforcement action last year, uh, which was which was really a, a model for how things how things can go. And I think you saw something similar happening in Wisconsin. But then uh, we also saw the concerted, well-funded pushback that's that's underway right now. This week in California, uh, a, uh, a resolution was passed by the uh, by the assembly uh, by the legislature. It was adopted by the Senate. Uh, that uh, c- constitutes an application to the U.S. Congress to call a constitutional convention pursuant to Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution for the sole purpose of proposing an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would limit corporate personhood for purposes of campaign finance and political speech. It declares further that money does not constitute speech and may be legislatively limited. Uh, that passed 23 to 11 out here in the California Senate. Uh, I don't know how many states... Uh, would have to join in for a constitutional amendment. We've heard talk of those sorts of things before, constitutional convention. Um, I guess that's good news that it it happened out here in California. It seems like it's going to take a a lot of effort, though, from a lot of states before any of this can happen. And in the meantime, we're going to have years, uh, election cycle after election cycle, where the millionaires and billionaires just seem to be taking over. Uh, this is troubling, and I really appreciate your coverage of this uh, over at uh, the Center for Media and Democracy, prwatch.org, now a part of uh, the Progressive magazine, progressive.org. Brandon Fisher, uh, stay on this, and let's talk more about this, particularly as this uh, Walker case sort of slips under the radar uh, in the near future, my friend. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Oh, boy. What a mess. See, I told you I wanted to give you the good news first. Uh, Brendan Fisher, you can uh, check him out at prwatch.org or at progressive.org. He is the general counsel at the Center for Media and Democracy, which is now part of the Progressive magazine. Uh, All right. Let's take over the globe. We go to a quick break, and then we come back with uh, much more broadcast straight ahead, including some more news out of Wisconsin and some good news for a change out of California. So, you know, hang in for that. Yeah, I was going to say things could get worse, but no, we'll try to make them better. Plus, Desi Doyen in the Green News, she'll be joining us in a little bit. Stay tuned. You're listening to the broadcast on Pacifica Radio. Of 
Quadrennial Men's World Cup Soccer Tournament is recognized as the most popular spectacle in the world. Pacifica Radio has special coverage of this year's tournament called The People's Game, which looks at the political, socioeconomic, and cultural issues surrounding the tournament, as well as the games on the field. It's sports coverage like only Pacifica can do. You can find the daily People's Game radio shows at www.thepeoplesgame.org. And you can also follow the People's Game 2014 on Facebook and Twitter. From the demonstrations in the street to corporate critique to the best coverage of the World Cup anywhere, check it out at thepeoplesgame.org. All right, we'll give you some good California news, as promised, shortly. But first, uh, while we're still in Wisconsin for a moment... Oh, welcome back. This is the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman on KPFK. Uh, You may remember back during the 2012 election cycle, there were so many cases of voter fraud and voter registration fraud by Republicans, even very, very, very high-profile ones... Yes, I'm talking to you, Mitt Romney. Uh, that we found ourselves at the at Bradblog.com uh, dubbing it the year of GOP election fraud. Well, it looks like there was even more GOP election fraud back in 2012 that we didn't notice because it has only come out to light, uh, come to light this week. This was back in 2012 in those recall elections, the Wisconsin recall election of Republican Scott Walker that we were talking about in the last segment and a number of uh, uh, state senators, as well as the incredibly close Supreme Court race uh, out there in Wisconsin that became a proxy battle between Walker supporters and opponents. We learn uh, that Robert Monroe, a 50-year-old Shorewood, Wisconsin health insurance executive, was charged on Friday with 13 felonies related to his voting a dozen times in five elections between 2011 and 2012. He's described by investigators as the most prolific multiple voter in memory. Listen to this. According to the complaint against him, Monroe cast two ballots in the April 2011 Supreme Court election, two in the August 2011 Alberta-Darling recall election, five, five times he voted In the Scott Walker-Tom Barrett recall, one illegal ballot in an August 2012 primary and two ballots in the November 2012 presidential election. In the presidential election, Monroe cast uh, an in-person absentee ballot in Shorewood, Wisconsin, on November 1. And then he drove a rental car to Lebanon, Indiana, where he showed his Indiana driver's license because Indiana was the first state in the union to have photo ID voting restrictions at the polling place. So he showed his Indiana driver's license to vote in person on Election Day on November 6th. 
and thus uh, voted uh, twice, at least twice in that election, once in Indiana, once in Wisconsin. (laughs) Monroe owns a house out there in Indiana. The 26-page criminal complaint was filed Friday in Milwaukee County Circuit Court, is being prosecuted by Assistant District Attorney Bruce Langraff, one of the prosecutors involved in the John Doe investigations of Governor Scott Walker's staff when he was county executive and the now, for the moment anyway, halted probe into fundraising by Walker's gubernatorial campaign that we discussed in the last segment. Monroe claimed to have a form of temporary amnesia, and he did not recall the Election Day events when he was confronted by investigators. Each of the 13 counts carries a penalty of up to $10,000 in forfeitures and three and a half years in prison for a total of 130000 and 45 and a half years. I hope he gets every single one of them. If convicted of a felony, also, he would lose his right to vote. Now, for all the uh, people saying, oh, well, that's why we need photo ID restrictions at the polling place. Guess what? None of this would have been stopped by photo ID restrictions at the polling place. As I mentioned, Indiana already has it. That didn't stop uh, this guy, Monroe, from being able to vote there. Neither did it stop the Indiana Secretary of State, Charlie White, from from committing voter fraud. He was uh, the Secretary of State, the chief election official in Indiana in 2011 was found guilty of three counts of felony voter fraud himself voting in a place where he didn't actually live. Yeah, it was the same thing Mitt Romney did, by the way, in the 2010 uh, Senate special election up in Massachusetts. In the case of what this guy did in Wisconsin, almost all of it was done by absentee ballot. And, of course, these photo ID laws generally have nothing to do with absentee voting. They only take effect uh, at the polling place. So, no, photo ID wouldn't have stopped that uh, from happening either. It would, however, have stopped up to 300,000 voters in Wisconsin, legal voters, from being able to vote at all, as a federal judge recently found up in Wisconsin when he struck down the Republican polling place photo ID restriction as a violation of the U.S. Constitution and a violation of the Federal Voting Rights Act. So much irony, so much to unpack. Uh, I'll let you guys uh, figure it out because there's more to cover here. Meanwhile, as we do move back to California and the shadowy photo ID voter initiative uh, that had been set, that had they had been working, they had been trying to get this Ballot initiative onto the November ballot out here in California, liberal California. Keep all of those vote frauding Democrats from being able to cast a ballot. You know, the people who are discriminated against by these laws, the elderly, the minority, the students, the poor. As a matter of fact, this initiative, which had gotten the okay from the secretary of state out here in California to to go out and collect Signatures had to collect about half a million signatures to get this thing onto the November ballot. Uh, this particular initiative, it was very detailed, about seven pages, and it completely rewrote the election code to require a photo ID uh, at the polling place, as well, by the way, as uh, copies. You had to make a Xerox copy of a photo ID 
for absentee ballots, for absentee mailing, or your vote would not be counted. In this case, uh, it would have required either a uh, had a lot of restrictions on the type of uh, photo ID. It had to be uh, a U.S. or California state issued ID with a photo with an expiration date, but it could not include <laughs> it could not include student IDs, even if it was from a student from a school from a, a state run school. Those, for some unspecified reason. Those wouldn't count. So if you were a student going to school here, allowed to vote here, which the Supreme Court long ago determined that uh, those who are going to school in a particular state, you know, they, they spend these students spend more time here than they do back in their home state. They may be out here nine months out of the year. They may plan to stay out here. They may not have a car because they're students, so they may not have a California driver's license, but they have an ID. They go to UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. They have an ID with their photo on it, with an expiration date on it. It's issued by the state of California, but under this uh, photo ID initiative out here in California, that would have been no good to vote. You couldn't have voted under that. Well, the good news is this initiative failed. It did not get the signatures that it, it needed to, uh, to be on the November ballot. But we looked into it a little bit at bradblog.com trying to figure out who the hell these people were. They've got a website called guardmyvote.org. The only name officially uh, tied to this initiative was a woman by the name of Elise Richmond, who's a radio host out in, uh, out in Palm Springs. Now, I would have loved to have had her on the show to ask her about this, but she did not respond to my queries trying to get information about this initiative and about who was actually funding it. Because if you go to guardmyvote.org, you'll see a really nice website. Somebody paid some money for that website. And if you then look at Elise Richmond's own personal website for her radio show, that one, that one looks like crap. That one looks like it was put together by a third grader. But it does have links to things like, uh, what is it here? Uh, Pearls and Pistols gun class for women. Uh, it has a link to uh, uh, Glenn Beck's expose of the nefarious Agenda 21, which is a decades-old United Nations initiative detailing guidelines for sustainable development, which right-wingers have somehow conned themselves into believing is a massive evil conspiracy to imprison and enslave the globe with one world government or something like that. So that's Elise Richmond's uh, website. And then there's this really, really nice website for guardmyvote.org. Who funded it? We don't know. But it turns out because oh her name is not even on this website. So it turns out it's it's a, it's a website list nobody's name. It doesn't say who funded it. It doesn't say who's behind the initiative. It doesn't even say Elise Richmond's name, which we only have because the sec- the documents that were uh, filed with the Secretary of State, which I have linked at bradblog.com, uh, show her name, show her as the one submitting this initiative for approval. Uh, but obviously from her uh, radio website, she is a far, far right winger. Uh, in, in one article, she, where is it? Yes, yeah, she referred to Barack Obama and Michelle Obama as, quote, 
in all caps, by the way, the Sun King and the Ghetto Fashion Queen. That's Barack and Michelle Obama. That's not racist at all, is it? And uh, let's see. So she's clearly a Republican. And then the person who put together this, I would say, rather expensive website is a a firm, an outfit named Amy Ellison Creative. And I looked at uh, some of the other websites that Amy Ellison Creative have uh, has put together. Uh, They list among their clients such right leaning and Tea Party groups as the California Tax Limitation Committee. A Dallas-based PR firm calling itself Oh Sweet Liberty Public Relations. That's what actually what it's called. Oh Sweet Liberty! Exclamation Public Relations. Uh, they may, uh, represent all manner of right-wing media outlets and an organization calling itself Wolves in Government Clothing. Uh, let's see. She also this this person who put together the website uh, also does PR for TPAC.net. And for a failed 2012 candidate for the California State Assembly named Donna Lowe, whose Facebook page I discovered calls for followers to, quote, boycott public elections. No, I'm sorry. Boycott public education. That's even worse. Boycott public education. So it's a bunch of right wingers who won't say who they are, but they want to make uh, everybody show a photo ID when they vote, even though there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of perfectly legal voters in this state and some 21 million across the country who don't have the type of ID that would be required to vote under that law, under that initiative. The good news is it ain't going to be on the ballot. That's also good news, by the way, for the Republican out here who's running for secretary of state, a guy by the name of Pete Peterson, who would not tell us. We tried uh, many times to get answers on this but uh, who would not clarify his stance on photo ID restrictions like this. Uh, He had come out after Rand Paul said that uh, he's against those types of laws because they're, quote, offending people. Uh, And Pete Peterson, the Republican nominee for uh, secretary of state out here, said, yes, I agree with Rand Paul. Uh, I agree with his position. And then the next day, Rand Paul went on Fox News and clarified his position by saying, well, actually, there's nothing wrong with those sorts of laws. Uh, And then I tried to get clarification from Pete Peterson, which of the two positions he agreed with, with Rand Paul on photo ID. Uh, Peterson pretty much just wouldn't uh, respond. He said uh, that's the least uh, of his concerns. There are other concerns that he has. So it's good news for him, in any case, for this Republican candidate, because it won't be the photo ID initiative will not be on the ballot this November. Therefore, the Republican candidate for secretary of state will not have to give us his opinion if he's for or against this type of law. And if so, why he would be against it. So that's some good news there. So some good news in California. Also, more good news. A story that we reported on exclusively at bradblog.com and then here on the Bradcast just two weeks ago uh, is about a bill called Assembly Bill 2369. And it would change the rather liberal recount laws, post-election recount laws that we have here in California. Uh, so that only rich people, basically, could do these recounts. Now, the current law allows any voter who wishes, after an election, to file for a recount in any race they want, as long as they pay for it. 
and they can uh, file in any race, they can file in any number of uh, precincts and so forth that they choose as long as they pay for it. And now if the if the election itself, the results are reversed because of this count, uh, they get their money back. But other than that, they have to pay for it. Well, this new bill, AB 2369, was authored by Republican Assemblyman Kurt Hagman. And what it would have done is said that uh, essentially it wouldn't have changed the law very much other than to say that uh, a, uh, a voter requested recount would have to be paid for, quote, from the voters own personal funds. That's right. It uh, sometimes these recounts cost tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, and it would have had to come from the voter who filed the recount. The voter could not have collected money, could not have taken donations to pay for this recount, could not have pooled money with other concerned voters. According to AB 2369, it would have had to come from, quote, the voters own personal funds. Now, uh, I spoke with uh, Kurt Hagman's office, and they told me that it was because they thought there should be transparency on these recounts, that we should know who's funding them. I tried to point out the fact that does it really matter who's funding them, given the fact that when these recounts happen, they're done by the county. A count is a count. A vote is a vote. They're done transparently. They're done publicly. It doesn't really matter who's paying for them, it seems to me. But also this bill would end up uh, making it so that only really, really wealthy people could afford to uh, ask for a recount. Nonetheless, the bill passed in the state assembly, which is dominated by Democrats. And some, for some reason, Democrats came on and supported this Republican bill. It passed the assembly by an astounding 66 to 7 vote in the assembly. It has gone on to the Senate, where it will be looked at in committee. And then we noticed the bill and wrote it up and uh, exposed all of these concerns about it um, two weeks ago, talked about it on this show. The California Voting Rights Task Force uh, jumped in and started sending letters in opposition to the bill. Well, the good news is uh, those that opposition has now been heard up in Sacramento. And Kurt Hagman, the assemblyman, has amended the bill to completely remove all of that stuff about recounts having to be funded from the voters' own personal funds. So we think we may have dodged a very big bullet there. The uh, Voting Rights Task Force has now withdrawn its opposition to the bill. Jim Soper, their co-chair, said that the bill was poorly written and should never have gotten out of the Assembly Elections uh, Committee. Uh, He offered us kudos on highlighting it uh, and says that it seems to have been properly amended now by Assemblyman Hagman, and that's much appreciated. The bigger problem, as we reported when we originally covered this issue, uh, was that county election officials can charge whatever they want for recounts. Uh, And that has effectively stopped recounts on things like the uh, Prop 37, the uh, GMO labeling initiative out here, uh, Prop 29, the failed 2012 initiative that would have raised taxes on cigarettes to pay for cancer research. Because these guys just, you know, these county officials charge as much as they want. $4 a ballot in one county, 15 cents a ballot in the next. So there are some problems with recount law. But who pays for them right now ain't one of them. 
Okay, Desi, stand, uh, Desi Doyen, stand by. We're going to get to you in a moment. One last point that I want to get to before we go to the green news. Uh, the IRS scandal, the so-called scandal, the pretend scandal that we told you was a pretend scandal months ago when it broke. Well, you may have heard about the lost uh, emails that Republicans are now up in arms about this week. The IRS claims a hard drive crash is responsible for the lost emails from IRS official Lois Lerner. Who's, uh, who Republicans have placed at the center of this fake scandal in which the GOP pretends that they were targeted by the Obama administration's IRS for their political views. Of course, they weren't, and no right-wing groups were denied nonprofit 501c4 social welfare organization status, even though progressive groups were denied that status. But what you may not have heard... Uh, is that the hard drive crash in question, where the emails were said to have been lost, was actually reported in a series of emails back in 2011, long before the supposed IRS scandal even came to light. So when you see uh, uh, over the last few days, Paul Ryan, Daryl Issa, other Republicans racing to any camera they can find to express their outrage about these missing emails... While not bothering to tell the American public that the uh, unless the Obama administration has a time machine allowing them to travel back to the past, there is no mystery or nefariousness concerning those lost emails. Never mind that those very same Republicans didn't give a hoot about millions of emails that the White House said they lost. I'm sorry, the George W. Bush White House said they lost relating to the Bush administration's illegal outing of covert CIA agent Valerie Plame. In that case, many of those emails were inappropriately sent via a separate non-White House email system to purposely hide them. And unlike in this pretend IRS matter, there was no contemporaneous paper trail showing that the emails had been lost before prosecutors subpoenaed them. But in the case of the IRS emails, Fox News reported yesterday... That, quote, three quarters of voters think that IRS emails were deliberately destroyed. That, of course, is a failure of Fox News for misinforming their viewers, or I should say it's a great success for them because never in the history of this nation or any other has there been such a successful propaganda and misinformation organization as Fox News. Mission accomplished over there, guys. The fake Obama scandals will continue even as the real ones are completely ignored. Like, for example, why is the IRS giving tax-exempt nonprofit status to political organizations masquerading as social welfare groups in the first place? That's in violation of the law, and the fact that the Obama administration's IRS is even less likely to stop that practice now in light of this fake scandal is the scandal that Congress, the American people, and the corporate mainstream media the real ones, not Fox News, ought to be truly outraged about. All right, let's do some green news. Okay, Desi Doyen, <laughs> running late as usual. Yes. Lots to cover today, but I promised I tease this. I want to play this uh, because this was Fox News yesterday telling us the globe is not warming. The globe is cooling. And so you have got something to answer for here. Here's what they said yesterday on Fox News. 
1934, that's the hottest year on record in the United States, at least until NASA scientists fudged the numbers to make 1998 the hottest year to overstate the extent of global warming. The 1930s were by far the hottest decade in the United States. 1934, the hottest year on record. The 30s were the hottest decade. NASA lied. They've been fudging the numbers. They've been lying all along. You've got some uh, some explaining to do, Desi Completely Doyen. untrue. None what? of that is true. So what? what NASA did was NASA actually moved some temperature stations and actually changed the way some data was gathered. They put that very transparently. It was posted. It was published. It was peer-reviewed. There's nothing sneaky going on. There is no falsification of data. That's all, ex you know, I think it's really bad that they're accusing NASA of that, but, you know, that's what they do. And the U.S., by the way, is only one country. We only have, a you know, 4% of the landmass in the world. So when it's the hottest year on record in the U.S., that does not count for the entire world. <laughs> <sighs> well done. Let's do the latest Green News report. The issue has been settled. EPA does have the authority. The law says so. The Supreme Court has said so twice. Make that three times. The U.S. Supreme Court upholds EPA authority again. It's official. May 2014 was the hottest May on record. Canada's First Nations vow to fight the other tar sands pipeline. Plus... Until today, we've had no ways to measure the serious risks to our national economy that, that it faces from climate change. Titans of Wall Street warn climate change is really expensive. All of those warnings and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. CO2 is a different kettle of fish. It's not particulate. It's plant food. <laughs> that is the single most charming way I have ever heard someone say something so wrong. Republican Congressman Jeff Sessions from Alabama is wrong? Say it ain't so. This is your Green News Report. He is wrong, but he is adorable. He is wrong-dorable. <laughs> Okay, Desi Doyen, the hottest May on record, that's impossible. Fox News has just today told me that the globe has actually been cooling since the 1930s. So what new numbers are you faking now? <laughs> oh, if only that were true. That's the problem with getting your news from Fox so-called news. May 2014 was the hottest May ever recorded on the entire planet, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Fakers. Beating the old record for the hottest May set just four years ago. The ocean also set a new high temperature record for the month of May. Forecasters predict that the record ocean warming is on track to contribute to what may be a super exceptional El Nino event coming up this winter. So just to clarify two points, that hottest May on record, that's globally, right? Yes. Not here in the U.S. Right. Because, you know, on Fox News, when it's a little chilly in the U.S., they think the entire world is freezing. Second question, you refer to the ocean temperatures. This is something that, again, the folks on Fox News seem not to notice when they say either the globe is cooling, which it's not, or the growth of warming is slowing a bit. It may be slowing a bit, but only on surface temperatures. Those numbers don't take into account the oceans, which are warming. Right. That would be willful blindness of trying to ignore inconvenient data.
Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court has reaffirmed yet again the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to regulate carbon dioxide emissions that cause global warming. It was a complicated split decision on Monday, but the upshot is that while the conservative wing of the court did slightly limit the potential emission sources the EPA could regulate under the Clean Air Act, they took out tiny emitters like schools and small businesses, which the EPA was hoping to avoid anyway. But the majority of the court again upheld the EPA's broad authority to regulate emissions from large industrial polluters, refineries, factories, and power plants, by far the biggest emitters. And this is the third time the Supreme Court has had to do this, and it's probably not the last. So again, to clarify, these big polluters go to court, they say carbon dioxide is not a pollutant, or at least it's not a pollutant you can regulate. The Supreme Court says yes, and yes, and yes, you can. That's right. And in fact, you must because it's part of the Clean Air Act, so you must regulate these emissions. That's right. Got it. And the risk that climate change poses to every sector of the economy is finally beginning to dawn on Wall Street. If we act immediately, we can avoid the very worst outcomes. And American business needs to lead in this area. That's former U.S. Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson at the press conference launch on Tuesday for a new report, the first ever to calculate the impact of climate change on the U.S. economy, called Risky Business. It's a joint project between Paulson, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and billionaire philanthropist Tom Steyer. As Mayor Bloomberg says, this new report makes the true cost of global warming quite clear. Until today, we've had no ways to measure the serious risks to our national economy that that it faces from climate change. Our report shows that the longer we wait to adapt to and mitigate climate change, the more devastating the economic impacts will be. And we just cannot afford to wait another minute. Some of the more dramatic findings include that by the end of the century, high temperatures could make it extremely difficult for people to work outside at all during heat waves. Well, pretty sure Michael Bloomberg and Hank Paulson work indoors, so they don't need to worry. And yet they are. Go figure. Finally, the First Nations Indian tribes in Canada are girding up for a huge fight. While the controversial proposed Keystone XL pipeline remains stalled in the U.S., Canada's conservative government has approved another pipeline, the Northern Gateway, set to transport Canada's dirty tar sands oil across British Columbia to be shipped to China. Canada's indigenous tribes, the First Nations, have vowed they will fight the pipeline going over their land with lawsuits and direct action, saying it violates their constitutional rights. The leaders say, quote, we are the wall that the pipeline cannot pass. For much more on those stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Follow us on the Facebook and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. Enough news for you today. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, to G, our soundboard operator, and to Oscar Rajo, helping us out on the phones. Not even close? I'll get one of these times. Thanks also to Brendan Fisher of the Center for Media and Democracy. Until we meet again, you can find me on the Twitters at the Bradblog and, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good night, America. <laughs>